So, you want to save the world with clean energy? Make money doing it? Confused about the economic and technical realities of residential and commercial solar, batteries, heat pumps, EVs? Want the real-world scoop on new energy technologies, not manufacture hype? Then tune in to the Weekly Energy Show, hosted by Barry Cinnamon. Insights from Barry's 40-plus years in the solar and energy industry will help you understand the future ways we'll generate and consume energy. And now, here's Barry. Welcome to this week's Energy Show. It's time for my 2024 energy predictions. And this year, I'm adding electrification predictions in with what I normally talk about, which is solar and storage. Now, the electrification incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act, which we finally call the RA, they're already starting to drive demand for heat pumps and electrical upgrades. Just as the tax credits from you know long ago, 30% tax credits, which were then refreshed in the IRA, just like those tax credits accelerated the solar and the EV markets in years past. Now, my better half pointed out that predictions, like the ones I'm doing for 2024, are much tougher than doing 2023 recaps last year. But nevertheless, I'm going to stick my head out and go ahead with these 10 predictions for 2024. Number one, and these are in no particular order, just kind of the way they came out of my head. Number one, EVs will be equipped with integrated 240-volt generators. Now, most EV manufacturers don't provide any kind of output from the car other than like 12 volts, which you can use to charge things up. But Ford in their Lightning truck and Tesla in their new Cybertruck are including 240-volt high amperage, 30 or 40 amp generators in their vehicles. These basically can be connected to a house and power the house. You don't need anything really special except for a transfer switch. And these generators will enable owners of these vehicles to use their huge batteries on wheels to power their home, both for ordinary daily or evening use, as well as the increasingly frequent blackouts that we're having. And I think that clever drivers are going to figure out how to charge their vehicles inexpensively during the day you park at work and you get some cheap energy, maybe only 20 cents a kilowatt hour. And then you drive that big battery home and then you can use that battery to power your house during peak electric times during the evening. Save a lot of money that way. All right, prediction number two. Heat pump sales will surge by more than 25% in 2024. And that's really a pretty obvious thing based on the IRA incentives. But I think we could do even better if there was more equipment supplies, and these are high-efficiency heat pumps, you know, not the, the older ones that are sold. These higher incentives really apply only to the highest-efficiency equipment. So it's going to be limited by the equipment supplies, and it's also going to be limited by skilled contractors that know how to install these things. Now, candidly, here in the Bay Area and probably all around the country, if you talk to an HVAC contractor and you say you want to get a heat pump, they would rather sell you a gas furnace because they can bang those things out and they're cheaper. It's easier to make a cheaper sale, but they're not as good. All right. So the irony is that even though the IRA rebates, which are $8,000 for a heat pump HVAC system, even those aren't available yet, they're still delayed because the Department of Energy and state energy offices haven't really completed the paperwork. Customers are buying heat pumps now just because of the market awareness created by the IRA. And customers are taking advantage of the current tax credits. There's a few thousand dollar tax credit and local incentives for heat pump systems. So even if that $8,000 incentive isn't there, there's other tax credits that you can get right now. Could add up to three or $4,000 that are really going to help. You know, when you're looking at an inexpensive system, looking at a heat pump water heater, 
Those expensive incentives can cover more than half the total installation costs of a heat pump water heater, and, and it's a big chunk of the installation costs for a heat pump HVAC system. Okay, prediction number three. Fewer than half of the new clean energy manufacturing plants are going to be completed. Now, the IRA provides really big incentives for EV, solar, storage, heat pump, and component manufacturing in the United States. But the rules for applying these incentives for both manufacturing facilities and projects such as big solar farms, the rules are still kind of being finalized and clarified. And although there's been over 60 manufacturing plants announced, I believe that fewer than half will actually go into full-scale production once the plant owners of those plants really kind of dig into what the real incentives are and what the supply chain details are. And this is kind of what happens is you say, hey, it'd be a great idea to build a battery plant or build a new solar panel factory, but you kind of dig into the details and some of the ingredients, some of the things that you really need to make that plant successful on a cost basis would disqualify you for the incentives. So they're kind of digging into these details and saying, hey, this is a really good idea, but gee, we really can't get a solar cells or wafers or some kind of chemical in the battery without violating the terms of the incentive. And then the numbers don't pencil out. Okay. Number four, utilities in other states will follow California's lead to end net metering. Now, as you probably know, the end of net metering in California really clobbered the market. And the utilities are watching that and they're saying, hey, you know, if California did it, the biggest solar state in the country, maybe these other utilities in other states can do it too. And they can really limit the growth of rooftop solar, of customer-owned storage. And the reason why they want to do that is because they are able to, you know, basically earn higher profit. Now, here's the thing. It's a dirty secret that utilities are allowed to use their funds, which were generated by selling electricity, to influence state politicians. It just drives me nuts. I mean, my electric bill is going to PG&E, and PG&E is using some of my money to lobby my local politicians, actually both of them, to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars, to vote against rooftop solar to prevent me and my neighbors from putting in solar in the state. And they're able to eliminate competition. Now, there's laws against eliminating competition. This is the icing on the cake because not only are the utilities violating those anti-competitive laws, but they're using our money to do it. They're basically able to enforce their monopoly. And the Public Utilities Commission, ostensibly there to regulate these utilities, doesn't do a good job. And if you kind of follow the money, you'll find that the Public Utilities Commission, those commissioners themselves were appointed by politicians who took tons of money from utilities. And, you know, you'd think, hey, maybe we can pass a law to restrict utility lobbying efforts. But then guess what? Guess who's going to oppose those? Creating anti-lobbying laws from utilities who basically have unlimited money and from ratepayers to lobby against those laws is uniquely difficult to pass. And, and I think some states, I think Colorado did pass a law, but the law had a loophole that he allowed the utilities to somehow use a different source of funds, which when you follow it back really came from ratepayers, but they're able to use those funds to lobby against rooftop solar and storage and things that the utilities don't like, things that will decrease their profits. Okay, number five. Residential solar revenues in California will plunge by 50%. Now, as you know, net metering, which has been in place in California since 
1995, was ended. They call it net metering three, but it's not net metering anymore. Basically, you get less than the wholesale value for power that you send back. It's de minimis. That's kind of insulting because they call it net metering three. It's really just pennies, peanuts. If you actually had enough peanuts, it'd probably be worth more. And so that's terrible. It's unconscionable that these politicians voted for the utilities and against competitive sources of electricity that pretty much any house with a sunny roof, any apartment building, any commercial building can actually install. They voted against it. And it's particularly hideous that they're voting against these things, our politicians are voting against this, even though California electric rates have been rising at over 10% per year over the past three or four years. Those increases are going to continue. We talk about skyrocketing electric rates. My rate is, I think, 57 or 58 cents a kilowatt hour in the afternoon. It's crazy. Glad I have solar. All right. And so basically here in California, the state's unlikely to ever recover its solar leadership position until net metering policies are restored. And so what's going to happen, there's a tremendous amount of customer rage simply from skyrocketing electric bills. And you can just see it, you know, you kind of look at the, the blogs, you look at Nextdoor, you talk to your friends, you're like freaking out about these high electric bills. And they're also angry that net metering's over. So not only can new customers not get the great payback of solar that older customers did, but existing customers who might have had a solar system for a few years or even 15 or 20 years, if they add on to their system because they have higher electricity consumption now, maybe because they have an EV or they're electrifying, they will lose their existing net metering rights. I don't even know where to start. It's so anti-competitive. So there's going to be a huge backfire on politicians who accepted, I kind of did the research, these politicians accepted over $25 million in contributions from utility interests over the past six years. And so now you kind of wonder why these laws were passed by politicians who ostensibly are supposed to be looking out for their constituents. They basically took money from the utilities so that they had enough money for their next campaign. They get reelected. So they're getting, call it a bribe, I call it a bribe, they're getting bribed by the utilities to look the other way, to screw their constituents, to kill the solar industry, creating a half a billion dollar hole in the state budget and get reelected. So in my view, these politicians are no longer going to be able to rely on the utility gravy train to get reelected. It's not going to work for politicians anymore. Once voters kind of link this really high electric bill and they're freaking out about it, with information about lobbying money that their state representatives raked in. And boy, my jaw dropped when I saw my state senator and my assembly person, how much money they took from the utilities. You know, you can even look at what Governor Newsom, Governor Newsom got $5 million, checks from the IBEW, which is the biggest union working for PG&E, $5 million for his reelection campaign. And once that happened, it was lights out for the solar industry. Okay, number six. Another national-scale solar installation company will file for bankruptcy. Now, it's a really hard time in the solar industry, not only because of California's end of net metering, also because interest rates change. So these big solar installers, the bigger the company is, the bigger the losses are when their business declines. I just don't see how they're all going to survive, and I think at least one, maybe more, at least one, it's going to be a high-profile company, one that many people have heard of. It's going to go bankrupt. Maybe they'll do a liquidation. Maybe they'll do a fire sale. But the numbers are just kind of so far out of whack for some of these companies. You know, when I'm talking about the numbers, is their profitability and their short-term opportunity to recover those profits. It's really, really tough. And the reason is 
the finance model, finance business model, that a lot of these large-scale residential solar companies use is extremely sensitive to the interest rates. We all know what happened to interest rates over the past couple of years. They skyrocketed. So finance companies, solar finance companies, were borrowing money to come up with the money to kind of install these systems. And they would install the systems under what is called a third-party ownership model. And they sometimes call it a power purchase agreement, sometimes called it a lease. They're related, not identical. But they would borrow money on the short term, you know, over a few years, five years. And that would fund the growth of these companies. It's great. They're growing. We can raise money. We can invest it in, in rooftop solar at customers. We own those systems. We get the depreciation. And they can kind of show growth and profits. But they get paid back over a much longer term. These deals are usually 10 to 20 years, sometimes longer. And so what happens is when interest rates spiked, they went from a couple of percent, three percent, they went up to six or seven percent. These third-party ownership companies weren't able to maintain their profits, and they got hit with a double whammy. The first whammy was the solar industry kind of slowed down. People weren't as able to borrow money. You know, obviously in California, the net metering changed. And then they also had higher borrowing costs. They needed to borrow money at 6 or 7% rather than the 2 or 3% that they were able to borrow in previous years. Now, the good news is that we all expect interest rates to decline significantly, maybe towards the end of 2024. I mean, significantly is not by half a percent, but we got to come back down to 2 or 3. But they're going to be down a lot by 2025, at which point the solar finance market is going to bounce back. It's going to be very vibrant and strong. And also by that time, you know, what happens is every year electric rates go up higher and higher. And I think that a lot of the equipment costs, the solar panels, the inverters and things like that, that's going to come down a little bit. What's not going to come down is the labor costs. I mean, inflation has hit hit the cost of doing contracting work. But the higher electric rates and lower equipment costs are definitely going to help improve the economics when combined with more affordable solar financing. Okay, prediction number seven. Tesla will claw its way into the U.S. inverter business. Now, right now, we have what's called a duopoly. Two dominant companies, SolarEdge and Enphase, you know, half a dozen years been the major inverter companies. Both these companies have terrific products. SolarEdge has optimizers. Enphase has microinverters. And what they both do is meet the rapid shutdown requirements and the safety requirements, while at the same time providing monitoring and rooftop optimization. Really, really good technology. But Tesla's coming in with a related technology, not quite as good, but it's going to be a lot cheaper. And so I think what's going to happen is we're going to see a triopoly. I, I just made that word up, but then I did some research on Google, and there's actually a board game called Triopoly. It must be related to duopoly and monopoly. But anyway, there's going to be three companies that will have really good inverters and three companies that have really good battery systems. Um, and, and this is based on Tesla's new hybrid string inverter and I think they're going to be pretty successful because they have a really good brand and they're able to lower the system costs with their way of doing this. However, as I mentioned, these Tesla systems don't have module level electronics. They don't really have electronics behind each panel. So the performance of the systems is going to be a little bit lower than what you see with solar origin in phase. You're not going to get the monitoring, which I find to be a really terrific benefit. It helps us diagnose problems. But a lot of people are going to just buy them because it's more cost effective. Okay. Prediction number eight, virtual power plants or VPPs and vehicle to grid or V2G will not gain traction. These, these technologies, VPPs and V2G, they're 
great potential, and there's been lots and lots of utility-sponsored tests of these systems. You know, basically, a virtual power plant is when utilities aggregate thousands, hundreds or thousands of batteries together, and they can say, hey, I got a 1,000 10-kilowatt-hour batteries, you know, and now I got a 10 megawatt-hours of power. It's pretty, pretty good. Or vehicle-to-grid, the utilities are saying, hey, let's just kind of tap into a car's battery when it's parked at home, and then, you know, we can reinforce the grid in the evening when we really need power, and it's going to be really good for us. I don't think those markets are going to gain a lot of traction without really large customer incentives. And the reason is there's an underlying friction with these business models. Basically, utilities are using your battery or using your car to reduce their costs. And they're unwilling to compensate customers for the full value of those battery systems, whether it's a home battery on the side of the wall, like a solar edge home battery or Tesla Powerwall, or whether it's your EV. And the simple reason for that, they don't want to compensate the customers as much as it's worth, is utilities would rather generate higher profits if they themselves own those battery assets. It comes back to the standard utility business model of they get a 10 to 12% rate of return on all of their assets. So if they're borrowing somebody's asset, battery or car, they want to make sure that they're you know, making a lot of money on that. And the way they're able to do that is just by really underpaying the customer for the value of those assets. It's a paltry amount of money that utilities are willing to pay for customer-sided resources. And it's insufficient to cover the basic costs of the batteries or of the using the vehicle's battery. You kind of ran through the numbers and you look at, you know, just for a car battery, how expensive it is on a per kilowatt hour basis when you look at the price of that battery and the price of the vehicle, and you find that they're not really getting that much money from the utilities. The reason is customers don't really know what their batteries are worth, what the car battery is worth or what the home battery is worth to the utility. So it doesn't cover the costs For the customer, that's whose asset you're borrowing. And then you also have to remember, in these VPPs or V2G systems, there are installers that kind of install the system, not as much with a car, but with a a home battery. There's manufacturers, whether it's the battery manufacturer or the car manufacturer. And then they also have aggregators, kind of middlemen, that are kind of buying up usage of these home batteries or vehicle batteries, and then they're kind of selling them on the market. By the time you spread the little money that the utility is really able to spend for that over four parties, the utility wants to make money, the installer wants to make money, the manufacturer wants to make money, and the aggregator wants to make money, there's nothing left for customers. And I don't think that's really going to change. So I'm not super enthusiastic about these models. And we've tried them, and it's like, boy, this is more aggravation than it's worth. Okay, prediction number nine. The residential battery system business will consolidate. Now, it's really crowded right now. I mean, you've got a few big manufacturers that are doing very well, but I get an email every single day from another new battery company. I mean, you know, they keep sending me emails, but there's just a lot of them. And they're basically talking about, hey, we have a really cheap battery. I'm like, that's nice. I mean, batteries actually by themselves these days are relatively inexpensive. I mean, it's not like they're precious and they're unavailable. They're cranking them out all over the world. But... What's really useful to a customer, to a homeowner, to a business is a battery system. It has to be a complete and fully UL-approved battery system with all the software. And that's expensive to do. You talk to these companies and, you know, even some of them that have been in business for a few years, you, you know, I still say, okay, well... That looks great. Does it pass the UL 9540A large-scale fire test so I can put two of them in a house? And they're like, we're working on it. It's like, well, 
I don't want to go run around and say to people, I can only put in one battery when there's several of the manufacturers where I can put two or three in the space that one would ordinarily fit in. But that's just the beginning, you know, just the beginning of the cost of the system and getting Yule approval and software, because you also need a national sales and service organization to service customers. That costs a fortune. So for a lot of these new battery system entrants, it's, it's not just like running an ad or sending some email to installers saying, hey, buy my battery. They need to have big investments to make a complete system. It's all fully certified. It passes all the national and the local tests. And you need an army of people that it takes to support all those customers. So a lot of these little guys, you know, God bless them. They might have done it on a shoestring. They might have raised 10 or $20 million, but probably more on the order of hundreds of millions in order to really succeed in this market. And that kind of takes it out of the realm of a lot of the startups. And it actually takes it out of the realm of some of the other module companies or other companies say, hey, we're selling solar panels. Now we can sell batteries with the solar because they still need that whole infrastructure. And it's not easy and it's not cheap to do. Okay, last prediction number 10. Game over for fossil fuels. Now, COP28 showed the world that it will be game over for fossil fuels. And economics is the simple reason for this transition. In COP28, we talk about a transition away from fossil fuel companies fought that tooth and claw. You know, that's pretty much understood that we're going to need to get away from polluting, using polluting fossil fuels. And the economics are the reason for that. It's just way, way cheaper to generate power, whether it's centrally or at the site where it's used from renewables. But the downside is this isn't going to be instantaneous. It's still going to take another generation, 20 years, for this transition to be completed or mostly completed. You know, I, I shouldn't say never, but we're a long, long way away from saying we will never pump oil out of the ground again or natural gas out. And there'll be a little bit. You need it for certain technologies. You need it for lubrication. There may be ways to kind of clean it up eventually. But I think over the next 20 years, especially since the younger generation understands that we need to get away from fossil fuels as they become dominant in the economy, that's really going to change. So that'll happen. And I mentioned it. Energy from solar and wind is much less expensive than fossil fuels. And the other thing is about these renewables, solar in particular, is they're being deployed not at a growing rate, but actually at an accelerating rate. Every year, we make more gigawatts of solar panels than we did the year before. And those are just going in all over the world, anywhere there's sun. You know, on the other hand, the technologies that are being talked about for years and, you know, the big chunk of IRA money that have all this potential, these technologies that clean up fossil fuel emissions, such as carbon sequestration and storage, and such as direct air capture. And we've talked about these on previous shows. The technologies work, but they require more energy in than they save. So what happens is the electricity or the power or the energy that's used after you clean up fossil fuel combustion makes that source of energy non-economical. In other words, it's much cheaper just to you know, solar and battery rather than generate power with natural gas and then clean up that natural gas and sequester the CO2 that comes out. And, and there's billions of dollars that fossil fuel companies are spending and they've got their teeth into the IRA regulations. There's billions and billions of dollars in the IRA regulations to continue the, the testing and the expansion and the R&D for carbon sequestration, storage, and director capture. It's just thermodynamically doesn't work. And to me and to many others, it's an excuse for the fossil fuel companies to keep polluting and pumping CO2 into the atmosphere saying, eventually we're going to fix this. Never going to happen. And, you know, my view, these fossil fuel companies, without a doubt, are destined to become extinct 
just as their dinosaur ancestors. All right, with that, that's all we have on this week's Energy Show. Thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. And if you missed any of today's show, you can go to our website at energyshow.biz and listen to the podcasts. <laughs>